Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluated UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX, design, and product management professionals. My guest today is Uday Gajinder. Uday is a UX architect at Automation Anywhere, a San Jose, California-based company that develops world-leading robotic process automation software. At Automation Anywhere, Uday is responsible for creating a cohesive user experience across the whole product family and working with leaders of other disciplines to shape a progressive design culture. Across his 20-year career, Uday has wrestled with design challenges in enterprise, startup, and agency contexts, including for well-known companies such as Adobe, Frog Design, Facebook, Netflix, LinkedIn, PayPal, and Cisco. An active contributor to the global design community, Uday is currently the Enterprise UX Community Co-Curator and previous conference curator, and an advisor and instructor at Women's Startup Lab. He's also been a regular speaker at popular conferences and events such as South by Southwest, UX Australia, and the IXDA's Interaction Conference. On top of all this, Uday has taught interaction design at San Jose State and served as a Stanford D School executive coach. He's also been a guest lecturer at Carnegie Mellon, Notre Dame, and California College of the Arts. A seasoned design practitioner, design leader, and deep design thinker, be prepared to be challenged as we explore design leadership and the future of product design. Uday, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And I noticed when I was researching for the conversation today, Uday, that you consider yourself an artist at heart. And I got the sense from looking through your website that you're never far from your sketch pad. Where does your love from, for sketching come from? Oh, that goes all the way back. I think when I was a child, um, I always enjoyed just drawing and sketching, particularly toys. I collected Transformers and G.I. Joes. And I love just, you know, positioning them and then just try drawing them, literally just trying to emulate their poses and, and so forth. And that's where it all kind of got started. And then it kind of evolved into comic book uh, drawing. Once I got, I discovered comic books, Uncanny X-Men, and I realized, oh, wow, you can actually get paid to do this. And it kind of became a little bit of a dream of mine, still a dream. One day I'll become a comic book artist. Who knows? Have you still got your collection of G.I. Joes and Transformers? You know, I recently came upon them, rediscovered them when I was uh, helping uh, my parents kind of clean out uh, our storage closet. And uh, lo and behold, we found the boxes with some Transformers. Wasn't all of them. I'm not sure what happened to all of them and some, some of the G.I. Joes. And, it, and I actually did kind of set them up and pose them around. Took some photos, posted on Facebook. That was a fun little nostalgic moment. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Were you tempted at all to have a look on eBay and see how much any of them may have been worth now? I, you know, I was tempted to, but I didn't actually quite do that. Instead, I actually, because part of that clean out, we discovered uh, or rediscovered my old collection of comic books. And it was a big box and 
I had to find out how much those were worth. Sadly, not too much. I was hoping for a little bit more value, but it was nice to see the, to, to have them rediscovered. Yeah, especially considering they were quite important in, in terms of how you got started in, in the creative arts. And I understand that when you left high school, you went to study at the University of Texas at Austin. And I couldn't help but no- right. yeah, I couldn't help but notice that you studied, I believe it was engineering and fine arts, but yeah, but you didn't complete. And I was curious, what's the story with your first foray into university education there? Sure. Yeah. It's a fun story. So when I left uh, high school and, you know, I'm looking at, you know, different colleges, trying to figure out what I want to do next and so forth, you know, I, I really wasn't sure. And at the time, you know, kind of the the good thing to do if you're a good Indian American is to go into a field around computer science, engineering, and so forth. And so uh, I did receive a scholarship or, you know, got a scholarship from UT Austin, specifically through the College of Engineering. And I was looking at the majors and I saw civil engineering and it caught my eye if only because I thought, wow, this could be really fascinating to explore what it means to build massive things like, I guess, bridges and airports and highways and all kinds of things like that. And so I thought, okay, that could be kind of interesting. It was technically within, I believe, the architectural engineering program or college at that time. And so I thought, okay, architecture, engineering, building, some interesting confluence of activities there. And I guess the sketching and drawing can somehow play a part in that too, as well as my my penchant for mathematics and engineering. But I quickly realized that civil engineering just wasn't right for me. There was an introductory class I had to take, intro to civil engineering, and I'll never forget the, basically, it was concrete that that hit me hard, <laughs> quite <laughs> metaphorically and literally, because you got to understand the, you know, the materials of, of concrete and wood and steel and so forth. And I re- remember reading the book and trying to process this and understand it, and it just wasn't connecting with me. I, I had a really hard time just developing, I guess, the gestalt of what that means. And I barely got like a C, I think, on the final exam, something like that. Um, I struggled really hard, really mightily with that subject. And we had some projects. I just, I really had a tough time with that. And so around that time, a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, we grew up together. He had actually gone out to Stanford. And he was majoring in, I think, biology or something like that. But he had mentioned there was a product design program at Stanford, which is a blend of art and engineering. At least that's how it was framed at that time. And that piqued my interest. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if I could look into that. And so I actually came across the Rhode Island School of Design summer program in industrial design or product design. So I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should try this out. It's like a nine-week summer course and see where it takes me. Uh, At least do the exploration and try it out. I was also eager and excited to try a different part of the country. I've never been to the Northeast of the United States before. So I had to convince my parents to shell out, I think it was like 4,000 bucks or something like that, plus travel, room and board, all these things. A little bit of a hard sell. You know, the question that comes back, especially from you know, uh, kind of first generation immigrant uh, parents is, so what kind of job are you going to get? Are you going to be successful? Are you going to be able to take care of yourself and so forth? And I was able to find some data around that at the time. 
labor statistics uh, statistics kind of stuff around uh, industrial design and people who hire them. And so I think reluctantly allowed me to go there. And so I did the program for that summer. I fell in love with design. I knew that's what I wanted to do. It was the perfect blend of Yes, kind of the mechanical engineering side, as well as the artistic side of sketching and creativity and manifesting something that you can put in people's hands uh, and bringing all those pieces together from psychology and art and engineering and so forth. So I just had to pursue this further. So I went back to UT Austin uh, for my sophomore year, changed my major, knowing that at that time, I think it's different now, but at that time, UT did not have a design program per se in product or industrial design. So I knew I had to transfer to another college or university uh, to pursue a degree. So I'm already thinking strategically, how do I make that happen? Okay, first step, change my major to fine art. Not exactly the <laughs> the proudest moment probably for my parents. I don't know. Um, well, let's go into that actually, because yeah. you mentioned that earlier yeah. that there was this expectation that being, I think you used the term being a good Indian American that you would go and pursue a career uh, like you had set off when you first studied at UT Austin. What are those sort of pressures like to live with and, and where do they come from and why are they so strong? You know, it's interesting. I think part of it comes from, and again, I have to speak from the Indian American experience. I cannot speak for, for any others, other cultural identities and ancestries, but certainly for being an Indian American in the South, <laughs> in Louisiana, uh, which is where I was born and raised as part of a small kind of collective or, or um, a community of Indian Americans, most of whom were affiliated with uh, the local universities at the time, uh, Louisiana Tech and Grambling State. There was a sense of, you know, doing the right thing or the good thing, which was, you know, either you major, in, you know, you go be a doctor, lawyer, business person, or engineer, computer science or engineering. And those are kind of the fields that are known to lead to a sense of being successful and still a sense of pride, I think, within the family. And that I think from a parental perspective, you know, they, they made the arduous journey to come to the States, get settled in a very different kind of environment in a very different context. Possibly not uh, as, as accepting as, you know, as other areas in the U.S. as well. Sure. I mean, let's face it. Look, North Louisiana was certainly an area which I remember my father was telling me about uh, incidents of like uh, well racism, prejudice. Uh, he came to the U.S. in 1969, 70, I want to say. And yeah, he he told me how he went to a I think it was like a restaurant or diner. He had to sit in a different part or use a different bathroom. You know that kind of thing. As recent as 69, 70. You know it's astonishing. And you know, so I, I so I think that's part of the the thinking, the philosophy, and, and mindset. To okay, we'll settle here. There's a good job. You know, there's a tenured professor and so forth. Many of them were, but we want to make sure we're doing this so that our children can go off and become more successful and go someplace else and can get really established and settled and develop their families and so forth. It's so incredibly I high expectations, um, right? Like you, you're living with the, the sort yeah. of weight of like, we've made this whole move from our home country to give you this life in America and you shall make good on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think there was quite a, a bit of, externalized pressure and discipline uh, to, to do that. I know that for pretty much all of us, uh, again, the Indian American kids who are in that community in North, North Central Louisiana, you know, we powered through, you know, elementary school and junior high and high school, taking all the, the kind of top level uh, classes, the, the A-level classes and 
advanced placement and so forth, trying to get the scholarships and move on to other places, <laughs> other colleges and, and so forth. I took a slightly different path, you know, to go to UT, not quite finish engineering, now switch to fine arts because I want to pursue something called design. It was kind of kind of high risk, kind of high intensity, uh, high tension, but being able to transition to a good school, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, that I think reignited the sense of pride in my parents. Okay, I'm going to a good place, you know, pursuing a program that actually is uh, or can be successful in terms of your own career. And you went on to move on from University of Michigan to uh, get a Master's of Interaction Design from Carnegie Mellon University, That's which right. I also understand is a very highly regarded university in the US. How have your parents reacted to your career decision as it's played out? Have they come around? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh, for sure. If only because when I went to Carnegie Mellon, again, that's another kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a nice big check mark again for kind of Indian pride and so forth, going to a very good school that's highly reputable, well-established, known for very strong credentials, again, in all the main areas, you know, engineering, business, and so forth. So that, that was very good. But then also when I was wrapping up my second year, so it was a two-year master's program in the, the middle, uh, kind of that summer between uh, the two years, I was able to get an internship at Oracle in California. And so Oracle, Silicon Valley, high tech, another big check mark of pride and opportunity and so forth. And so I think that's when my parents realized, oh, okay, this is good. This is working itself out. They, Oracle actually funded my thesis project. I was one of two recipients of effectively kind of like a, oh, what do you call it? Well, I'll say scholarship. That's not quite the right word. They gave like 10 grand to two, two people based on the, the thesis proposal and so forth. And then I landed a full-time job at Oracle upon graduation. And so, yes, my parents are very happy and excited and glad that everything worked itself out. <laughs> and are you happy? Am I happy right now or at that time? Yeah, with how things have worked out. Oh, yeah. Quite yeah, a good. bit. I mean, it's not what I originally imagined for sure. I can say quite honestly at the time, so this was going back to 99, 2000. So 2001, I, I officially graduated. So this was after kind of the, the big hoopla around you know, the dot-coms and startups and so forth. Also various UX agencies. This was a time of science and buyant and sapient and they all rhymed and so forth. Razorfish. There was an expectation to go to one of those companies. For me and a few of us in the program, we were thinking aspirationally like IDEO, Sony, Philips, you know, they were kind of the leaders of hardware, software integration, and maybe pursuing something that's in the realm of networking technology, internet of things. Of course, we didn't call it that back then, right? So in a sense, I may have been disappointed that I did not end up in those places per se. Yet at the same time, I have to acknowledge that I took a a road less traveled. And despite the twists and turns along the way, things have worked out quite favorably. And I'm still quite almost astonished. <laughs> I've been doing this for so long at a variety of companies. I never would have dreamed or imagined even existed and I would be working there. Yeah. And it's been 20 years. If we fast forward to present day, I mean, you started work, I think at Oracle in 2001, as you just mentioned. And right. Recently, you've just shared your top 20 insights from this uh, two decades in the field that you've now had. And it was quite clear when I was researching and also listening to you 
then that you definitely sure. have walked to the beat of your own drum, as the saying <laughs> goes. Yeah. Now, is this something that you've always gravitated to or something that you've become more comfortable with this sort of experimentation, this willingness to take risks, but being able to, you know, obviously achieve some great outcomes in the process? Yeah, for sure. And I think this kind of connects back to the opening statement around an artist at heart. And I think the central premise of that is being willing to try new things, uh, take a creative approach. Yeah, being a little bit, you know, daring, but it's, you know, iconoclastic, whatever. But doing so with an intent of let's explore, let's see where it takes us. How does this kind of benefit and improve me? And, you know, where does this take us in terms of the overall industry and profession? I think one thing I've become very comfortable uh, in terms of being in my own shoes about is the contributions I am making for the profession and the industry at large and making sure I sustain and continue that kind of feedback loop through the writings, the presentations, uh, and so forth. Yeah, and I I get the sense that you're a bit of a provocateur when it comes to that conversation that you want to have with the profession and the field and more broadly the the, the whole sort of product ecosystem and the people that are making product. And it's something yeah. that struck me when I was reading through your 20 insights was that none of them seemed to relate specifically to the craft aspect of design. They all were about relationships with others which is mm -hmm. what I gather is what has enabled you to have the impact that you've had. The one that stood out the most to me, though, was number eight, which was designing is a political act. How yes. is designing a political act? Yeah, so there's some context to that. Uh, a little bit of a backstory. Way back at Carnegie Mellon, I studied under Professor Richard Buchanan, Dick Buchanan. He was the head of the design program at that time. He is now, I believe, at Case Western Reserve, uh, leading a new kind of design management program. And so, you know, we all had to take his introductory seminar, grad seminar, and he made the point that, you know, design is a political activity. And we're all like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? And what he meant by, and what I mean by it, is that when you are designing, and if you talk about design from the perspective of Herb Simon, uh, which is that designing is the turning existing situations into preferred situations, to do so, you are in effect Yes, you're creating change whereby certain stakeholders, participants may not feel invested in that change uh, and they feel invested in the current conditions and situation. They want to preserve and persist that. And in that sense, it becomes the politics of the different agendas and motivations and how do you make sure that what you're striving towards can still maximize the benefit and gain for everybody. Dick uh, Buchanan, he also mentioned to me way back in an email that I've had some correspondence with him when I just left CMU and joined Oracle. And this was my first full-time job. I'm looking around like, wow, this is really fascinating, like all the stakeholders and arguments and discussions going on. And he said something to me uh, in, in an email about the subtle maneuvering of ideas and how you maneuver those ideas through an organization and through different people and relationships. And that in effect is politics. And that always stuck with me. And it connects back to what does it mean to, you know, for design to be a political activity in that regard. And politics isn't a game that one can play with oneself. 
obviously involves, as you mentioned, other actors, other stakeholders, people in different yes. departments, even people within your own department sometimes yes. can get in the way or enable change depending on how effective you've been at managing those relationships. You know, what are right. some of the ways that you have found effective in, I suppose, first identifying allies and or potential allies and then developing those relationships to enable that agenda to, to take hold? Yeah, for sure. Let me start by going back to a, share a brief anecdote. Again, going back to Oracle, just a few weeks after I first started, uh, one of the managers uh, who's kind of like a mentor for me uh, just kind of called me into his office just to check in and see how I'm doing and so forth. And, you know, he asked me, so how are things going? I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. You know, I'm kind of cruising along with my projects and, you know, I think I'm doing the right things, uh, producing some wireframes and flow diagrams and stuff like that and your standard kind of artifacts. And then he asked me, so what do you want? Like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Like, I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that question. So it was, it was just so generic. And I just said, I, I don't know, I guess I want good design to ha happen, you know, something really nice and cool to ship. <laughs> um, and he said, no, you know, what you want is influence. I'm like, ah, the I word, influence. And it brought home to me the artifacts I'm making, I'm like really like, you know, just laboring over these artifacts, right? Spending hundreds of hours or whatever it is. They mean nothing unless they serve some kind of, well, influential, you know, maneuvering that you're trying to accomplish. You know, you got to build a relationship with somebody and you got to help influence somebody's point of view and get them around to seeing what are the real problem or challenges. And so I, so I did a couple of things. So one, I printed out this massive diagram, uh, this, this kind, of, kind of this information architecture analysis thing, pinpointed all these problem areas. It was seven feet long. I printed it out and took it up to this executive review. The expectation of that review was to look at some screens, not a whole IA architecture you know, kind of diagram, but only to look at some screens. So I presented the screens, but then I also said, hey, look, there are big problems with the overall product kind of architecture. And it just made this massive impression upon that executive at the time and kind of helped reframe the project goal and timeline. Um, I thought, oh, wow. So through the power of the artifact, I can actually help influence and shift opinions and get certain things happening a certain way. There's another thing which I only developed later. So that's through the power of the artifact. If you don't have the artifact and you're trying to get someone aligned before the project even starts. How do you do that, right? And I realized it's quite simple. Literally just talk to that person like one-on-one, -on -one, go out for a beer or coffee or whatever it is, usually outside the confines of the office. I find that the office itself can be constraining. And well, I know in pandemic times, it's a little bit different with Zoom and so forth, but basically have that one-on-one -on -one conversation and you tee, off, tee up that conversation by asking the question, what do you need for me to be successful? How can I Great help you question. become successful? Great question. Right? Yeah. That catches folks off guard, uh, I got to say. I don't know if it's because they've never been asked that question before, which is quite telling in itself, or just haven't heard that question from a designer, right? Um, usually there's that kind of, I think it's still there 20 years later, that expectation that the designer makes the mock-ups based upon the requirements from somebody else, right? Versus a strategic partnership of how can we continuously discover and understand this problem space and figure out what the right solutions are. 
So that was a very long-winded answer. but <laughs> It was a great answer. I mean, it's two great stories there and there's a lot of value in just the applying those insights from those stories back to people's careers. And it sounds almost too too easy to be true that just by mm-hmm. spending some time with people taking a genuine interest in what they're trying to achieve can actually Absolutely. help unlock doors for you professionally and also do what the organization needs to do in a, in a better way. You know, we're not just there to build our own uh, fiefdoms. We're actually there to, to help everybody exactly. achieve. So continuing on this theme of politics, it would be crazy for us, I suppose, to suggest that things always go to plan and that everybody always buys the (laughs) ideas that we want them to. You know, you've noted that everybody wants to slay your ideas. And I think you did contextualize that in the sense that they're not always doing it out of malice, but it doesn't sound like very much fun. Why do people (laughs) want to kill your ideas? Yeah, you know, ideas are fragile. Um, this is something Johnny Ive himself uh, had spoken about in one of his, you know, those uh, videos for like the iPhone, you know, reveals and so forth. But it's really true. Ideas are fragile. They have to be nurtured and protected. There is, I think, I don't want to say fear as a strong word, maybe a little bit anxiety, nervousness when ideas are, you know, shown in front of people and, you know, concern that, this could impact something somebody else is invested in, or they've already made some decisions that went a different way. And they're like, oh, great. Now we got to revisit this again. You know, so that's, I think, what may be the issue. I think there's also, this is more from an ego perspective, you know, uh, to kind of get your digs in, get your kicks in or whatever it is. Uh, when you see an idea and then you kind of, you know, uh, that feeling like, okay, you know, we're going to throw some slings and arrows at it, bulletproof it and see how smart I am. Ha ha. You know, if their supervisor or boss is in that meeting, well, there you go. Right. Because they're trying to show off and stuff like that. You know, I think there are lots of little things that, that are happening uh, that are going on. But the key thing here is how to preserve and nurture and develop the ideas to a point where it now becomes suitable to, okay, now we're going to bulletproof it or test it or, or whatever to the right level, to the right degree. So. Yeah, and how much of that bulletproofing of the idea actually takes place before the presentation? And I mean by that, like how much of it has to do with what we were talking about just before about using influence to Mm -hmm. uh, get alignment on the objective and also to give people some idea of what it is that they might be seeing before you sort of turn up there and you go, ta-da, here it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, the key thing is, first of all, that we bring stakeholders in through the whole process and they witness the messy ideas being born so that there is no ta-da at the end. It's actually, oh, this is how it's evolved and nurtured and developed along the way. And yeah, maybe we took a few pivots or shifts, maybe a U-turn here and there, uh, but making sure they were part of that process or at least had visibility into it and some understanding of the rationale. I also learned many years ago when stakeholders were giving feedback and so forth, there is sometimes a conflation of understanding the idea versus agreeing with the idea. And so I first want to make sure everyone in the room, do we understand the idea? Do we understand the premise of it, the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish? Okay, next, do we agree with it? Oh, we disagree. Okay, now let's talk about the disagreement. And so I often try to make sure we have, in a sense, two parallel conversations around that or just kind of set it up so that they are separated. Because the reaction to something, a negative reaction or adverse reaction, 
maybe more around just misunderstanding what the idea was about in the first place and the problem is trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important that you have separated those two layers. I can see how that could be hugely valuable. I mean, if you're disagreeing about the fundamental concept, it's a completely mm-hmm. different different discussion about uh, aside from disagreeing about the execution of what a solution might be. Exactly, exactly. It's I get it. I mean, within software development cycles, it's very easy and and almost feels natural to jump to the execution because we've got urgent timelines. Sorry, urgent. I'm doing the air quote signal uh, <laughs> around urgent. And so, yeah, you, everything or a lot of things start to become qualified through that lens of executional you know, timeframes and so forth. And I want to come to execution and in particular, I want to come with mm-hmm. uh, to Agile and its relationship with design. But before we do yeah. that, I, I want to touch on something that you just said before, which was that the stakeholders had been involved in the process and they'd seen that we've made a few pivots, you know, they've seen the, mm-hmm. the, the mess on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So they know that we've considered multiple potentials for our solution or whatever it is, our mm-hmm. idea that we're presenting. And it's not the first thing that we thought of. Design's often a challenging area for people to work in ego-wise because it is a creative act within a business context. So sure. unlike fine arts where you can you know, sort of work with carte blanche, albeit you might be a little hungry from time to time, in design, <laughs> we've got to deal with other people as we've been speaking about. How do you know, from your own experience as a designer, how do you know whether you're holding on to an idea too tightly? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Honestly, I think that's something I'm, I still kind of wrestle with. And that's that artistic, uh, you know, spirit or vibe within me. I, I think it comes back to, you know, what are you feeling into your emotional um, kind of vibe or, 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 you know, the signals and being cognizant of them as you're receiving feedback from others, you know, and if, you know, starting to realize, hey, maybe I'm getting a little too personally wrapped up in this thing. It's it's getting hot in here. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, That bead of sweat starts to trickle down. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm really getting kind of anxious or excited about something. It's interesting. I think, you know, there are times when you want to hold on to something. I don't know if it's because of a personal sense of the preciousness of the idea or is it because you believe it hasn't been brought to fruition yet which connects back to the whole thing about the fragility of ideas you want to kind of hold it and nurture it and cultivate it and then at a certain point okay now we can kind of uh, rip it apart and and you know break it down and so forth and it's just trying to figure out what's that right time which can be a tricky balance. Part of it is just practical, right? Okay, we've got a timeline, we got to hit this deadline and so forth. We've got certain constraints, you know, your, your, your boss or whoever is, you know, kind of demanding certain, maybe a certain direction or a certain kind of output by a certain time. And that kind of drives things in such a way that, okay, I'm just going to have to let this go or we got to make a pivot here. Well, I'm not going to let that go. So let's let's talk about timelines and pressure. And I think I touched yeah, on it before, yeah. Agile and its relationship with design. You know, it's often, I get the sense, not a healthy relationship. There's a, a focus extreme on extreme delivery that Agile has brought to the way in which we produce products and that has mm-hmm. impact how we design products. Now, you seem to agree. I've got a quote here from you now, which was, Design and agile are fundamentally at odds with each other, 
and mm-hmm. that trying to make them fit into each other isn't the point. So my question is, if that isn't the point, what is the point? How can they coexist to the benefit of all concerned? Yeah, yeah. And I still stand by that. I mean, look, I think the point is really more about how do we create the conditions where the design, you know, the good design that we're striving to accomplish and deliver and put in the hands of people, how can we create the conditions for that to happen and break away from the labels of, is it agile, is it scrum, is it waterfall, you know, are you doing lean, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What are those conditions? Because maybe the conditions are, you know, we have to create maybe a multidisciplinary pod. We have to create a skunk works unit. Maybe we have to create something else. But how do we create the conditions where we are learning about our users, we're feeding that into the design and development process, we're constantly iterating and prototyping and gathering feedback and using that to drive what gets built. So, and, and that's really the point, I think, at the end of the day, that's, that's what it's about. What is driving what is being built and shipped? Is it an artificial schedule and deadline? <laughs> Sounds like you've it, had some firsthand experience with those. Oh, yes, indeed. Well, you know, when I hear the timelines, I always wonder where is that coming from? Okay, we got to ship it by end of Q2. Why? Like, what is driving the decision to say end of Q2? Why not end of Q3? Why not end of Q4? Is it because we have a, a huge customer that's, you know, willing to pay 10 million bucks? And so we really got to get it out there. You know, I, I just want to understand the rationale. And then is there flexibility around that rationale? Could we, you know, maybe kind of chunk it up a bit into different phases and so forth? So just having visibility into that and then some kind of, well, it goes back to the conversation. You know, can we have that influential conversation around improving that schedule? Because by improving the schedule, it actually would and will improve everyone else's effectiveness at delivering the right thing, the way it should be done. Uh, and this is including engineers, software developers, the best ones I know, they're craftsmen. Beautifully, elegantly crafted code leads to beautiful execution. And they're the ones who are already thinking in a systems point of view, modularity and so forth, uh, rather than hastily cobbling something up that could have downstream effects. Yeah, well, the business seems to really have grasped onto Agile, though. I can see why it's attractive. Sure. You know, you, you, oh, you have sure. discrete units of time. You've got defined outputs from those discrete units of time. It allows some feeling of control over where things right. are going and how they're being made. But the Agile Manifesto itself was specific to software development. Do you feel that it's been applied too broadly and perhaps to areas where it was never intended? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you read the original manifesto, which I've done, I mean, they do talk about people and customers and users and so forth. The whole point of it was a reaction against uh, very long timelines, you know, the waterfall kind of approach where they were kind of, you know, handing off to different teams and, and, and so forth over long stretches of time. And there was not an ability to respond quickly enough to changing customer requirements. That's what it's about. How do you iterate quickly because of customer requirements are changing? It is not about continuous learning and discovery. It's not about creating a product or a service that serves customer needs. It's about tweaking and optimizing the executional method. And so that I think that still stands. So, so when you think about how it's being applied now, and let's face it, I mean, 
pretty much every company I've been at, it's not really true agile. I mean, yeah, they'll do some of the ceremonies. It's being applied in slightly different forms and fashions, suiting their needs and whatever they can do or want to do. There's always going to be some variations of it. The question is, are we being driven by the methodology of agile or are we being driven by, we want to produce the right design that will help solve our customers' problems? Those are two very different questions. And I think they lead to two different answers, which then collide with each other. Well, let's talk about something that I get the sense has come out of a collision that you've been having in your career, which is this talk that you gave recently at IXDA this year, which mm-hmm. is titled The Rise of Meta Design, a starter playbook. Now, in that talk, you suggested that we might currently be trapped in UX design as it's currently practiced. And a lot of that practice mm-hmm. is influenced by what is the most popular mode of the day, which is agile. Right. What inspired you to conceive of this notion of meta design and what change are you really seeking to make by putting this out there in the community? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for asking me about this. Uh, this is something that's become a recent passion of mine. Although it, the seeds for um, this notion of meta design, for me, uh, were kind of uh, planted and begun, I want to say in 2015. So this was when I had just switched over to from one startup to another startup. And then I, I kind of transitioned into consulting for, my, for myself. But I just remember at that time, very much deeply uh, in the throes of a heavily regimented, agile-driven kind of uh, culture and process, which was not benefiting the quality of the design that was uh, that we're striving for. And it had, you know, really awful effects. <laughs> no other way to put it. When you say yeah. quality, what do you mean with the quality of the design? What 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 is it that you're getting at there? Yeah, multiple levels. One is just visual quality, just literally the alignment of the pixels and the colors and fonts and so forth, but also a sense of integrity, the information architecture, the interaction models and so forth, all coming together in a very cohesive way. Uh, so it feels well-made and well-crafted. Because when you touch something and use something that is of quality, you know that there is a, this, this kind of, it's almost like a connectedness of all the pieces. Like they all just harmonize with each other versus something that was kind of piecemeal. Certain pieces aren't working because, you know, one team worked on that feature, another team worked on a different feature, and there's no sense of modularity. And so now they're all, all over the place. Anyway, so yeah, that, that's what I mean by quality. Oh, but going back to the, the question around meta design and what do I hope to accomplish? So it was written in the throes of that kind of situation where I felt quality was being impacted and it had awful impacts on the team. The team was suffering, burned out, frustrated, and not feeling truly appreciated, uh, just kind of grinding out the stuff without recognizing the, the harmful impact on their own kind of work-life balance and so forth, and just being contributing members of a broader team in the, in the company. So... I realized, yeah, maybe it's not about designing the thing. We have to design the processes and services and, and systems around the thing, which goes back to the people and culture and organization. And then I realized, yeah, you're designing design. Is this the right way to design? You know, maybe there's another way to do it. And that's when I started to realize this is starting to get into some dangerous areas, right? Uh, going I was going to say, this sounds like Pandora's box to me. Let's let's open it and yeah, see where we go. <laughs> exactly. Are designers philosophers? Are designers, in a sense, therapists who are facilitating and enabling 
uh, cross-functional dialogues, which could open up its own Pandora's box of all kinds of tensions within an organization. You know, who are designers? What are they really? What is their purpose? But I feel and I believe by asking these dangerous questions, it will lead us hopefully to a better place <laughs> where we are feeling a little bit more positive and, and just have a stronger relationship amongst ourselves and with our cross-functional peers. Yeah. And in that talk, you said that it feels like we're simply shipping to ship in service of high yeah. velocity goals. And I really like this segment of the talk because you also suggested that we've had a, a great run at improving design efficiency and the utility mm -hmm. of what it is that we do, but it's come at the expense of the poetics of the experience. Yes. Has there always been a tension between the sort of efficiency-seeking mechanistic aspects of mm -hmm. the business of design and the humanistic and expression-driven aspects of design as a craft? Oh, for sure, always. You know, I always go back to uh, the famous Eames uh, diagram uh, in which he has this kind of overlapping segments, all these kind of dynamic, they're not quite circles, they're kind of blobs. Uh, the idea is that they're all very dynamic, representing different points of view. Uh, different stakeholders, uh, different competing interests. Again, going back to the political activity aspect of design, but also recognizing, yes, there's going to be this kind of balancing act between the mechanistic and the humanistic. That's always going to be there. It's a question of how do you create something that is a harmony of the two, where they feel like they're connecting with each other and it's not overly mechanistic and overly about utility and efficiency, and likewise, not overly poetic either. And kind of yeah, a little too romantic, a little too beautiful. I don't know what that would mean. Um, <laughs> not useful but, enough. But, yeah, not useful enough. Exactly, right? It, it's done purely for the romance of it. So that's always going to be intention. I do believe we have over-rotated on utility and efficiency sake, partly through agile, partly through design systems. There's almost like an over-glorification of design systems. So we may be over-dialing on that. And once systems are in place, what's next, right? Does the other thing become kind of sterile, is there an opportunity, would there be an opportunity to inflect a little bit more poetry, elegance, quality, and so forth of a slightly different you know, dimension than what has been systematized? Yeah, I think the design systems undoubtedly have been great in some ways for establishing patterns that don't mm -hmm. need to be reinvented, you know, every time you come to do a particular right. piece of design. Oh, yeah. You know, and I don't think there's any argument against that, but I do hear what you're saying there with with them being overly relied upon and I think the danger with them seems to be that they're almost treated as a project and mm -hmm. they become in effect almost like company policy which becomes very difficult to evolve and and change if it's not set up in the spirit of of that you know evolution and experimentation right. that we've been talking about. Yes, exactly. Um, I've been involved with design systems, both in my current uh, company as well as previous ones. And I try to advocate for the notion of a living system. The design system is not frozen and rigid and brittle. It has to be living and dynamic. There are places maybe you have to be a little bit more firm and it's got to be, you know, rigid or strong. But on the whole, again, as conditions change, customers are evolving, users are evolving, their needs and use cases are changing, evolving. The devices the user are changing. We have to maintain that flexibility. Um, and there are times for refresh. You know, the brand has evolved, right? You know, things of that nature have changed. So if we think of it as a living system, I think that 
offers a, a very powerful kind of reframing of what a system is. And now we're start talking about ecosystems and biomimicry and biology and all these other things, which uh, which I think are quite uh, quite fascinating metaphors. Yeah, and well, let's come back to this notion of design existing in a broader system. And if we're going to push further than where we currently find ourselves with craft, that we need to mm -hmm. tap into some of those other aspects of what design uh, or design leadership might be. Now, something mm -hmm. that I found particularly refreshing in the talk that you gave and how you articulated this was you broke down design into three different aspects. You had the trade craft, which is yeah. what we've been talking about with design systems, you know, the actual application of design, the expression of design, the UX and the UI of design. But you also mentioned a second, which was stagecraft, and a third, which was statecraft. And there's a yeah. bit of a theme flowing through our conversation around influence. But I just wondered, Uday, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about each of those and why it's important to look at design as a whole in this way that you've articulated? Yeah, for sure. Those three levels of craft, I mean, for me, it's a way of thinking about the different pieces uh, and activities um, that are involved in designing. And I think it gives a little bit more nuance and understanding of how we apply our craft. Obviously, trade craft is what we all know and talk about and think about uh, the craft of making. Uh, whether it's artifacts like, you know, a flow diagram or wireframes and so forth, prototypes. But we also want to think about, you know, what is the purpose of that tradecraft? Well, a lot of it is we make in order to understand and interp interpret like a set of requirements, translating it from a hundred page document into a prototype, right? Now we can have a richer conversation about our intent and the benefits for, for the users. Then there's another level of craft. Uh, I call it stagecraft. And what I realized for myself, and as I observe other designers and, and even and the teams I've worked on or worked with, you know, we're staging workshops all the time, collaborative kind of efforts. Um, you set up a war room, you know, these kinds of stagings of events and situations and moments with cross-functional peers. And yeah, you know, you, you'll, you'll get something out of it, uh, but that may not be the purpose. Maybe the purpose is around the conversation we need to get these five stakeholders talking to each other because they never talk to each other or the right hand, left hand kind of a problem. So in a sense, we are setting that up. It is performative, admittedly, but you know, there is theater, <laughs> there is a theatrical quality to it. And as long as it enabled dialogues to happen, that's a good thing. And then, it's also uh, leadership so as well, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's oh, something yeah. that we're doing in the act of trying to change and alter the status quo you know as part of our political activity we're actually as you said setting the stage for change to happen yes exactly and that's why you have multiple levels of craft in order to exude or demonstrate that leadership capacity which then takes us to the third level of craft state craft and this is around yes the politics influence management uh relationship building all that kind of stuff and you know going back to what i said previously it is through the relationships that the designs can happen and hopefully the output and quality can be achieved through that, well, relationship building, partnership building, um, especially with an eye towards a strategic uh, connection between yourself, your team, and those cross-functional peers. You know, you spoke about them as levels and I couldn't help but think also as we were talking about some of the softer skills that may be required to achieve in particular mm, statecraft. Yeah. 
at the level that uh, is useful for furthering design, that there, there may be some correlation between the levels of design craft and the seniority of the design practitioner or leader is there or is or are these skills that anybody at any level or any any number of years of experience in design can actually learn and apply yeah the way i think of it is it's almost like proportionality over the course of your career so maybe in the beginning of your career proportionally you're doing a lot of tradecraft you know, you're cranking out lots of stuff. Maybe you're participating in some workshops. You may not set them up, but you may participate in them. And you're probably not doing a lot of statecraft uh, just because you're not, you're not having as much visibility. But then the proportions start to shift as you evolve in your career path. Let's say if you're moving from, let's say, an associate designer toward becoming a lead, a principal, an architect, where the rotation or the sort of pro, uh, proportionality is a little bit higher now for st on the statecraft end of things, a little less so on the tradecraft. So that's kind of how I see it. And, and you're going to reach a place where you're, maybe you're hitting all three at certain equal levels, depending on your role and the company and so forth. So that's kind of how I see it. But ideally, you should be touching all of them at some point in some way. It just reminds me of what you told me earlier in the conversation about your first job at Oracle and how your manager pulled you aside, told you that what you actually wanted was influence. And then you went mm -hmm. to that meeting not long after with the seven, uh, seven foot printout of the architecture that's that right. you presented after the screens. Yeah. Now, to me, that right. sounds like you were exercising some statecraft with a healthy dose of naivety as to what the impact yes. of that might, might've been. Oh, for sure. I had no idea what I was doing. It was a very <laughs> high risk. Um, <laughs> it was quite a gamble on my part, but luckily things kind of worked out. So I have done other situations where uh, I actually printed out a whole uh, set of screens. I just kind of mocked up a bunch of like crazy ideas, printed out a big poster, put it up next to my, my, my cubicle. And uh, that was not well received by my supervisor at the time. So you, you got to know when to kind of flex that, that capability, that skill. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It's all, all good, as I said, talking about best case scenario, but are there, other than what you've just said, are there any situations that you've experienced where you've been burned from trying to exercise statecraft in a, in, in a way that wasn't well received? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mainly because I did not prepare enough on my own or prepare the people who were involved. I remember back at Citrix, I forget the actual topic of the workshop. Um, we were trying to drive some kind of workshop thing. And I just went ahead and kind of emailed a bunch of people and tried to set everything up. And there was quite a bit of uh, uh, pushback uh, and resistance to that effort. And it just never happened. It just never materialized. I don't think I suffered any harm from it, um, but it was a little bit of a bummer. Uh, especially since uh, I did reach out to some fairly high level people in the organization. And then I'm just trying to think e even more recently, well, this was only because we shifted into the pa pandemic mode, so everything went to Zoom. And so we were originally were trying to do a workshop in person and suddenly we had to shift to a whole new mode. And that was a bumpy start, at least trying to get some stakeholders who, again, not aligned, different KPIs, different kind of motivators and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really have enough time to do that one-on-one, -on -one, hey, let's get coffee, let's chat before I set up this big workshop for everybody. Because the point of that workshop, by the time you're there, everyone should already have a little bit of an inkling of what's about to happen and feel pretty good about what we're going to do. And this one got, uh, we actually, things worked out, 
somehow miraculously, but uh, it took a, a little bit of uh, some bumpy uh, twists and turns along the way. Yes, it sounds like what you're saying is it's it's equally as important in design to design the conditions for that stagecraft yes. or statecraft uh, as as it is to actually be on stage and and act out that role. Yeah, exactly. I actually wonder how much of an impact this whole move to remote will have or is having in your experience on people's ability to exercise influence in organizations where otherwise they would have been in close physical proximity to one another. Yeah, it's tough because now you have to think about how do you kind of relay your, it's your energy. I mean, it's it's your vibe through different channels um, and through remote and so forth. It all comes back to conversations, visibility, transparency, active listening, being authentic, you know, the kind of the trite things we hear in this kind of like management training and stuff like that. But it really matters because at the end of the day, you have to figure out how you can convey a sense of trustworthiness and I, I would almost really say humility um, that again you are there to drive a benefit for the team for the company for the customer and just try to a lot of repetition by the way i've noticed that someone had mentioned to me a long time ago maybe this is from a book or something when you are tired of repeating something over and over again tired of saying it that's when the other side is just beginning to listen and hear it because you have to repeat again and again and again, which goes back to evangelism and so forth. You have to do it over and over again. It's interesting you talk about repetition. I mean, that's one of the old sayings in advertising that it's uh, seven seven exposures to a piece of communication before someone takes mm. an action. You know, and o- often we think that you know if we say things once or twice to people that they should just just get it. And I think the thing with just having words is uh, words open to misinterpretation where we were mm-hmm. talking earlier in this conversation about the role of design artifacts and, you know, one of designers mm-hmm. superpowers is the ability to create something visually. You know, you, you do that yeah. through your sketchbook at a very basic level and actually put that in front of somebody and have a conversation about a third, a third thing, a third space. Um, I know right. Teresa Torres is quite big also on this notion of visualizing thinking in order to actually mm-hmm. reach alignment. And I hear another, right. you know, a range of other people are as well. Speaking of sketching things out, Uday, you sketched out a four-part playbook for meta design in the talk that we've been speaking about and it encouraged designers to think about what they do differently. What are those four areas of the playbook for meta design? Yeah. So those areas, and and they do have this kind of intersection amongst them, right? I mean, it comes back to a few basic things. So with kind of strategic, a way of thinking, kind of strategic foresight, you want to look ahead to the interconnection of processes, opportunities, activities, and how they all relate to each other and keeping that in your mind. It is very much systems thinking in a sense. Same time, you know, you want to be provocative and bold and kind of risky with your ideas. Uh, really kind of push the envelope, help folks get comfortable with being uncomfortable and kind of get out of those comfort zones. Um, let's let's go into then, that one. How do you yourself get comfortable with getting other people uncomfortable? Because <laughs> I, I know, you know, there are a lot of people, probably the vast majority of us are not yeah. friends with conflict. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we would do almost anything to avoid conflict or at least the risk or perceived risk of conflict like how yeah. how have you become more comfortable being the sort of design activist sure that's a great question it's, i don't like conflict either but i do like i guess debating challenging provoking around the ideas and the possibilities the potential 
And, you know, when I hear no, uh, I want to understand, so what's really going on here, right? What's the risk, right? What's the trade-off? What's the fear, the anxiety? And let, let's kind of navigate around that. And then basically close with like, let's just try it out. Let's see what happens. What's the worst thing that can happen, right? Yeah. And often it turns out the worst thing really isn't that bad or likely to happen. So yeah, why don't we take a few days and explore this idea and see, and see what comes of it. And, and oh, and so just continuing on to the other uh, pieces of that playbook. So reflection in action. This is really important, I think, for designers to really kind of and this is going back to Donald Schoen and the reflective practitioner, as you're making, creating, making workshops, you know, having relationships and so forth, we're setting them up. What's the impact here uh, upon yourself, upon the team, uh, the company and so forth? What are the consequences of those actions? And, you know, will this lead to career growth for yourself? Will it lead to habits of excellence for others and so forth? That kind of reflecting. And then the last one, uh, give it that fancy phrase, yeah, intellectual humanism. I mean, this is kind of my way of getting into the whole, is a designer a philosopher? And asking those kind of dangerous questions, getting away from the tech talk uh, jargon kind of stuff, uh, but really kind of getting at a deeper, more nuanced level of understanding. Why are we doing this? What is the purpose? Who is benefiting? And can we kind of approach things with a sense of genuine, really human curiosity? Um, and I think when you do that, it reshifts how we approach the work that we do. Well, let's pick up and close on that notion of intellectual humanism. I get the sense that you feel that that's something that has been lacking from design lately. If you could get a message out to all of the designers on the planet, what would you want them to know and do? That, that's a good one. <laughs> so I think the message is remember that as designers, we, speaking collectively for the entire, you know, for everyone, we bear actually a tremendous responsibility in terms of creating something that can amplify really human virtue and the virtues being good, honest, authentic, trustworthy, just, and so forth. You know, we have the fortune and the privilege of making apps, products, services, systems, and so forth. We want to make sure that whatever we are making is imbued with a real sense of human character and dignity, more so in certain areas, medical, for example, healthcare, financial services. But, you know, it, it, this is true for everywhere um, because at the end of the day, people are using what we make and we want to make sure that they feel good about it and maybe reflect a little bit of human virtue in terms of, of what they're interacting with. It's an important message and a great place for us to leave things today, Uday. What a great conversation. We've certainly covered a lot of ground. It's been very challenging, at least it has for me. It's made me think about a lot of things differently. <laughs> sure. And I really want to say thank you for so generously sharing your stories and insights with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you so much. You're most welcome. Uday, if people want to find out more about you and the things that you're up to, your writings, your presentations, what's the best way for them to do that? So I've got links uh, over on Medium. I've got a collection called The Designer Speakeasy. Uh, these are essays pulled from ACM Interactions that I've written, um, as well as various other uh, writings. Um, that's probably the best place uh, going to Medium. Um, I do have my own website, uh, dub, dub, dub 
www.udanium.com, which also has additional resources. Great. Thanks, Udo. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here too. Everything we've covered will be in the show notes on YouTube, including where you can find Udo and also the resources that he's just mentioned. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX, design, and product management, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, man.